Welcome to the Grace Point Podcast, a ministry of Grace Point Church for Scythe in Cumming, Georgia. To find out more about Grace Point Church, you can go to our website at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org. As you listen to this week's sermon, I just wanted to let you know that with a little bit more than 23 minutes left in the sermon, I make a mistake. I've been talking about the faith of Moses and Noah and Abraham, and I mix up the names. I say that Moses built the ark, that was Noah, and I say that Abraham painted the blood on the door jams, and that was Moses. I apologize for this and hope that that doesn't throw you off too bad. Here, but also so that you can know the announcements as well as see some of the texts. And I would encourage you to take this home and use this in your own private worship, singing those songs that the Lord has uh, given us, uh, singing the songs that we sang, confessing the faith that we confessed, uh, and being reminded of all the truths that we go through as we work uh, through the service. Uh, now that you've had a chance to turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 through 31, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 to 31. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Father, we hear your repetition of by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith throughout this passage, and we pray that as we dive in, you would help us to understand better what it means to live by faith. And as we look at the example of not just Moses and Rahab, but of all of the Old Testament uh, people that you have drawn out in this chapter, that we would be encouraged and challenged to live by faith that we would understand what faith is, and that we would always be drawn to the fact that Jesus is better. Father, we thank you for your word and for Christ, and in his precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In his book, The Triumphs of Faith, G. Campbell Morgan points out that the opening line of the well-known hymn, My Jesus, I Love Thee, has been altered. In most hymnals, it reads, My Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. For thee, all the follies of sin, I resign. But originally, the line read, My Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. For thee, all the pleasures of sin, I resign. 
This original translation captures well what we could say the theme of this section is. God's people, past and present, are called to rely on God and his covenants and his promises. Part of the way that we do this is to fix our eyes on Jesus, looking to our promised future and not getting distracted by the pleasures of sin. We take joy and pleasure instead in the Lord, laying aside the sins of this world. We're going to talk in a couple of weeks about Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, where it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We take joy and pleasure in the Lord, laying aside the sins and pleasures of this world and looking instead to the promises of God. Today's section of text is going to remind us of this, that Jesus and the gospel of grace are far more valuable than the sins, the temptations, and the pleasures of this world. That's a truth that we've already proclaimed twice in this service. First, in the song, Has Thou Heard Him, Seen Him, Known Him, one of the verses said, What can strip the seeming beauty from the idols of this earth? Not a sense of right or duty, but the sight of peerless worth. As we're drawn into those idols, what takes the beauty of those idols away? The sight of Jesus, looking to him. And then we just sang it, and turn your eyes upon Jesus. The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. This text, those songs remind us that Jesus and the gospel of grace are far more valuable than the sins and temptations of this world. And this is an important reminder. It's a reminder for, for us for when things feel like they're not going well. Because what are we tempted to do? We're tempted to run to the things of this world. It's a reminder for us when it feels like doing the right thing is impossible. Because when we feel that temptation, we run to the things of this world and away from the Lord. It's a reminder for us for when we feel like we're just not pursuing God, because at that point, the temptation is to run to the things of this world, because after all, we're already not pursuing God. But the author is reminding us that Jesus is better. And today, as we look at verses 23 through 31 of chapter 11, we're going to look at Moses in verses 23 through 29, we're going to look at Rahab in verses 30 and 31, and then we're going to look at us and summarize how this text applies to us. So let's start by ch checking out Moses in verses 23 through 29. The largest portion of our text today deals with the life of Moses, not quite as much as what we covered last week with Abraham, but a large chunk nonetheless. Let's start by looking at verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So we begin with Moses as an infant. This takes place in Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. This starting place 
is meant to draw the reader, not only us, but the original audience, into the entire story of Moses. We're beginning at the beginning of Moses, and so anytime we look at Moses, especially when we look at the beginning, we're reminded of the entire story arc of who Moses is. And so as people read this, they're starting to think about all the things that Moses went through in Egypt, in Midian, and after Midian. And so automatically, we're already drawn into the whole story of Moses, even though it's not all going to be covered. It's a reminder to us that anytime the New Testament quotes from the Old Testament, we need to remember the context of the Old Testament because it helps us remember that story that's involved there. We don't look at just one verse. We look at the entire context because context is? That's right, king. Now, verse 23 has this weird phrase in it, a phrase that I think many of us are confused by. It seems like Moses' parents hide him away because he's beautiful. What what does beautiful mean in this text? They say the child was beautiful. They were not afraid of the king's edict. In fact, this is even addressed in Acts chapter 7, verse 20, by Stephen. Dennis Johnson, one of the commentators uh, that I was looking at, says this, in view of our author's description of faith as focused on things not seen. We saw that in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, that faith is a focus on things not seen, which reappears explicitly here in this section in verse 27. The reference to the infant Moses' beauty refers to more than his physical appearance. His parents saw that there was something special about this child. Moses' parents exercised faith. How does the verse begin? By faith. They exercised faith. They did not obey Pharaoh's order to kill their baby boy. Notice that the verse explicitly says they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, we may read this and just think, oh, it's no big deal. They were able to hide him away or whatever. But, But it was a big deal. Because if they had been caught they would have been punished with death. And yet, they weren't afraid of that. Johnson goes on to say, Moses' parents did not fear to protect this special child whom God had entrusted to them. Their fearlessness foreshadowed their son's fearlessness when facing the king's anger in verse 27. And it illustrated how a living faith in God can set people free from the fear of death. Chapter 2, verse 15. And we're going to look at a similar concept in chapter 13, verse 6. Chapter 2, verse 15 says, Deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And the author is saying that because of their life of faith, they no longer had that fear. When we are living a life of faith, it will set us free from the fear of of death. So the author moves on from Moses' infancy and fast forwards to his adulthood in verses 24 through 26. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth of the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. This is a big section. You're going to notice, too, that as we continue through here, the author is skipping over a lot of things that happen and emphasizing certain things on purpose. And here, the author continues with the life-altering decision that Moses made. 
You remember the story. Moses' parents saved him, then they put him in the basket, then he's picked up um, by Pharaoh's daughter, brought up in the house of Pharaoh's daughter, um, living like a prince in the wealth and the prosperity. It was one of the richest nations on the earth at that time. So he was living well. And yet he chose not to be identified with the family of Pharaoh, but to be identified with the family of God. It was a life-altering decision for him to stand with God's people rather than being a prince of Egypt. As a prince of Egypt, Moses would have had access to the riches of the royal court, which the text calls the fleeting pleasures of sin. The author focuses on this contrast. Over here, he has his identification with Egypt, which would have given him more money than he would have been able to spend all of the pleasures and joys that he could have pursued of this world. Over here, he could choose to be with the people of God, identifying with those in slavery and bondage, those who had very little. That's what the author wants his readers to focus on. Riches versus God's people. In the story of Moses, as we read in Exodus, we see the mention of the slaves, the Hebrews, as Moses' brother occurs twice in Exodus 2, 11. And so his identification is with the slaves, not with the royalty. By identifying with the Hebrews, by identifying with God's people, Moses was tying himself to their fate. Moses could have totally ignored them and just lived the life After all, he would have been in Pharaoh's house. He may never have been Pharaoh or major leader, but he would have lived in a life of luxury. But instead, he tied himself to the people of God. In New Testament terms, this is sharing in Christ's sufferings. Moses was sharing in Christ's sufferings. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13 says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Moses chose not the wealth of Egypt, but to follow God's law and be one of God's people. This is emphasized in verse 26. Look back at verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. The reproach of Christ. What that means is not that he would be reproached for choosing Christ, but by choosing Christ, others would reproach him. He chooses Christ, even though that's going to lead to reproachment, over the wealth and treasures of Egypt. Commentator put it this way It's a doubling, arresting move when our author identifies the greater wealth that Moses chose as the reproach of Christ, not of money or joy or anything like that. It's a shopping paradox, shocking paradox to equate reproach to wealth and wealth that exceeding, or wealth exceeding that of Pharaoh's court. Moreover, the author seamlessly links the afflictions endured by ancient Hebrew slaves to the suffering of reproach endured by the Messiah himself. What this commentator is trying to point out is that these verses are masterfully written. Because not only do they give us that comparison between the wealth of this world and the wealth of the Lord, 
But they link the suffering that the Hebrews were going under to the suffering of Christ and the joys that that would bring. Just like 1 Peter says, this author is making a major point here. In Moses' life-altering decision, he was choosing the better choice, even though it didn't look like that, if you consider the world. Now think back to the original audience. Think back to the context of this letter. That original audience, too, had suffered because of their faith. They had suffered because they believed in Jesus. They were Jews that had grown up in, grown up in the Jewish faith, but saw that Jesus was the Messiah. And they trusted Jesus, and they were being persecuted, not just by the government, but also by other Jews. Their choice was, between the rich, was not between the riches of Egypt and being in a nation of slaves. This original audience's choice was between a status of welcome in the Jewish community and synagogue versus following Jesus and being shunned by the Jewish community, the synagogue, and likely their own family along with all the social and economic results of that shunning. They, too, were at a place of choosing between Christ and the comforts of this world. Dave McWilliams summarizes this well. The entirety of redemptive history, the promise, deliverance, and covenants are all about Christ. These realities point to Christ, lead to Christ, and revolve around Christ like planets around the sun. By trusting the promise, the Old Testament saints trusted Christ. Therefore, as the writer of Hebrews encourages God's new covenant people to persevere in faith of Christ, he rightly points to the Old Testament saints who also trusted in Christ, as then revealed in the promise. In trusting Christ, believing in God's promise to his people, Moses went outside the camp bearing Christ's reproach. McWilliams is reminding us that as this original audience and as us reading this, know that Jesus was the promised Savior and are trusting specifically in Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, so too did the Old Testament saints trust in Jesus. They just didn't know that his name was Jesus. They trusted in the promises of God which were fulfilled in Jesus. And so it is right for this author of Hebrews to keep pointing back to these Old Testament saints because all of the things they believe were rotating around Christ, even though they didn't know that his name would be Christ. The entirety of redemptive history, the promise, deliverance, and covenants are all about Christ. Everything in this scriptures point to Jesus, lead to Jesus, and revolve around Jesus because Jesus is better than anything else. He's better than being in the riches of Egypt as Moses was. He's better than the old Jewish faith that Jesus fulfilled. And he's better than any of the sins or temptations or desires or pleasures of this world. Trusting in Jesus is better. Just like Noah looked to the flood to come in chapter 11, verse 7, just like Abraham looked towards the city that was to come in chapter 11, verse 10, so Moses is looking beyond the things of this world to the things to come. What an encouragement 
to both the original audience and to us. This is a call to persevere, fixing our eyes on Jesus and the promises of the covenants that he fulfilled and brought. What a glorious comfort this is. Christ has done what we can't do. Next, in verse 27, the author talks about Moses' flight to Midian. So Moses identified himself with the Hebrews, then he killed a slave master, and he flees to Midian. Look at verse 27. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Again, it begins with the front refrain, by faith, over and over and over again. We're seeing by faith. The author is continuing to try to seek, to draw our attention to how we are called to live towards God's promises. Now, Moses fled because although he was afraid of the anger of the king, we see in Exodus chapter 2, verse 14, it was primarily his faith that was the dominant motive for him to leave. At the very end of this verse, he says, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He had glimpsed God's glory. By faith, he had been able to perceive the things not seen. And so he trusted in the Lord as he left. We skip over more of Moses' life. We get to verse 28 and we see the Passover. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Just like Noah, Moses trusted God's instructions in preparation for an event not yet seen. Moses built a boat when there had never been rain. Moses built a boat when there had never been a flood. Now, Abraham is painting blood on the door jams when there would never been anything like the Passover. But they believed, both of them, in the instructions of the Lord, even though he was instructing them over something that they had not yet seen. The story runs in Exodus chapter 12, verses 3 through 13. I encourage you to go back and read that and look at how they obeyed, even though they didn't know why, even though they didn't understand why. We look back now to that Passover meal, and we see all the symbolism of an innocent lamb slain for us, blood shed for us, covering our sins, covering us so that we are saved, not just from death, but from sin. And it included the sprinkling of blood which we know anticipates the precious blood of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The Passover was a shadow of what Jesus was going to do. And Moses and the people obeyed the Lord's commands, even though they had no idea of what was coming. They obeyed by faith. And then we close out the Moses section in verse 29. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. We skip over all the plagues, all the interactions uh, that Moses had with Pharaoh. We get the people out of the land with all the riches, and we see that by faith they left Egypt. But when you read the story, they come right up to the Red Sea and they camp. And they're trapped because there's mountains on one side, the Red Sea on another, and here comes Egypt, the largest army in the entire world at the time. And they're trapped. 
There's nowhere for them to go, nowhere for them to flee. See, once they left, Pharaoh immediately regretted that he let them leave. And they get trapped by the sea. Johnson says this, Fear, not faith, fueled the words of complaint against Moses in Exodus 14, verses 11 and 12. Let's read that before we continue that quote. Exodus 14, verses 11 and 12. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Fear, not faith, was what motivated them. Fear, not faith, was what brought the complaints against, Egypt, or against Moses. And fear, not faith, was an ominous foreshadowing of the next 40 years of their life. What happened to that generation that saw all of the amazing works of uh, the Lord in Egypt before they left? Saw the parting of the Red Sea? Saw the Lord descend on the tabernacle? Did they believe? No. They had fear. And they wandered in the desert for 40 years, not entering into the promised land. That doesn't sound like faith. Nevertheless, Johnson continues, by faith. They crossed the sea as on dry ground, and when the waters returned, their oppressors were drowned. This visible display of power evoked from the Israelites a confession of faith, short-lived though it would be. Exodus 14, 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. By faith, the people left Egypt crossed the Red Sea, and saw the might of the Lord against their enemies. We know the story is that that faith doesn't last long. It's soon overrun by fear. But it was by faith that they left. This was Israel's deliverance from slavery. Coming out of Egypt was not just that they get a new place to live. It was a deliverance from the physical persecution of slavery. The Exodus is a huge part of the people of God. All throughout the Old Testament, we see the significance and the hearkening back to the Exodus and how God brought them out. Before the Ten Commandments are given, in Exodus chapter 20, we see, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of bondage, out of the house of slavery. The Exodus is a huge part of the history of the people of God, and it's another shadow of Christ. So incredible how God continues to work and to point forward to what's coming. The Exodus is a shadow of Christ because Israel was slave from physical slavery, was freed from all of the bondage and slavery that can happen here on earth by God, bringing them out. And Jesus, in his death, frees us from spiritual slavery, bringing us out of the state that we are in, as, as Ephesians 2 tells us, being slaves to Satan. Because of Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension, we can be brought out and into relationship with the Lord. The Exodus is a shadow of what Jesus would do, not just physical uh, freedom, but spiritual, eternal freedom. Just as Israel was saved by God from physical slavery, we are saved by Christ from spiritual slavery. After all, the wages of sin is death. The things we do, the things we attempt, if we were to rely on them alone, we would have nothing to look forward to. But 
The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is what that assurance of faith was talking about. Or, or I'm sorry, this is what that confession of faith was talking about in the source of assurance. The source of assurance is the gospel, the promises of God, the fact that Jesus did what he did because it wouldn't have worked if it was dependent upon us. Praise the Lord. And not only did he bring out the Old Testament people from physical slavery and give to them the promises he had promised them, but he has re released us from spiritual bondage and slavery through Jesus. And we too can look forward to the coming of that day when we will walk again with him in the garden. And so in verses 23 through 29, we see by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith in the life of Moses. And then in verses 30 and 31, we see the story of the people as they're getting ready for the conquest of the land, summarized by Rahab and Jericho. So the author moves on from the story of Moses to the conquest of the promised land. See, he's walked the people through from the pre-patriarchal, from uh, creation all the way up to Abraham, through Abraham and his sons, through Egypt, their time in Exodus, or their time in Egypt and the Exodus, and now he's taking them into the promised land, reminding them again and again and again of the history of their people and how God again and again and again uh, frees them from slavery and makes promises and keeps them. So as they come into the promised land, they come to Jericho, the first city that was taken. And it was a city that was taken not by the might of arms, but by faith. Look at verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. The sudden fall of Jericho's walls illustrates that faith pleases God responds to God. And when we respond to God's word, he does mighty things. Even when what we can see makes God's word look foolish. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the people coming into Jericho. They're the descendants of the generation that died out in the wandering, so they didn't see any of the amazing things that happened in Egypt. They did get to cross <coughs> excuse me, the river on dry land. But they come to Jericho, this town with these mighty walls. And the Lord says, I'm going to give you Jericho. Now you're a soldier and you're thinking, what? How? Maybe, maybe, maybe the, the Lord will help us to break down the, the, the front door so that, you know, we can come in. Or maybe the Lord will draw them out and we'll be able to kill them slowly. Your, your mind is thinking strategically about the possible ways that, that you could defeat these people. But it feels impossible because these walls are huge. And what does the Lord say? I want you to march around those walls for seven days. If I'm a military strategist, that doesn't sound like it's going to win the battle. If I'm a military strategist, I'm already feeling bad because it doesn't look like a battle that can be won. And yet, by faith, God's people marched around for seven days. On that seventh day, blowing those trumpets, and the walls came tumbling down. God can do things that we can't see 
how they possibly could be done. And he does it through faith. David McWilliams says this, looking at the walls of Jericho, who could ever imagine that they could come down without a miraculous work of the Lord? The people of God may not have understood why the Lord had them march around the walls with a promise that on the seventh day they would come down, but they lived by faith. The Lord kept his word, and the people of God destroyed the city in conquest. Jericho is such a significant piece of Israel's history because it's one of the most clear examples of the fact that it wasn't Israel that did it. That it happened by faith because of God. And finally, in the story of Jericho, we get the story of Rahab in verse 31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Jericho was overthrown, but Rahab and her family were kept safe. They were saved because they believed in God. Joshua chapter 2, where we see the story happen, verses 8 through 13 say this. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, this is the spies are in Jericho, they're about to get caught, and so Rahab hides them. I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land will melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There's no spirit left in any man because of you, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Did you hear what Rahab said to the spies? The whole town has heard what God has done for his people. The whole town's hearts are melted. And upon hearing the things that God had done for his people, Rahab believed. Despite her background as an idol worshiper, despite her background as a prostitute, her faith in God was real. This is the Lord showing us that he redeems even those who society thinks are unredeemable. Now for Rahab, this was also a risky move, hiding these, slave, or hiding these spies, because if they had been found, her whole family would have been wiped out. And so just like Moses' parents who began this section of text, they didn't fear the rulers. They didn't fear Pharaoh. They kept Moses alive anyway, despite if he had been found, they would have all been killed. Rahab didn't fear the rulers of Jericho. Rahab didn't fear the fact that she could die if they found the spies, but trusted in the Lord. It's a nice little wrap-up to this section and how we see examples of people who, despite the threat against them, trusted in the Lord. Rahab's hope was not in her history. Rahab's hope was not in her character. She understood who she was, but she also understood who God was. Rahab's hope was in the Word of God. 
Johnson says, thus the Bible identifies Rahab as the prostitute while nevertheless commending her exemplary faith. Joshua chapter 2, Joshua chapter 6, James chapter 2. She is one of four women with Gentile associations enfolded into the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah along with Tamar, Ruth, and Uriah's wife. Matthew chapter 1. I think when people get to Matthew chapter 1, a lot of times when they're reading, it's just like, oh my goodness. Because it's begat, 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 begat. It's just a line, a lineage. But it's important because it shows us what God has done through the whole history of his people. Rahab's story is a shadow of the gospel. The promise of salvation comes to God's people, comes to Israel. But he promises Abraham and the nations will be blessed through Abraham. And so when Christ comes, and we see this in the establishment of the church in Acts 15, when they were arguing as a church, do we include Gentiles, or is it just for Jews that Jesus came? Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, and reigning right now is not just for the Jews, but it is also for the Gentiles. And Rahab is a shadow of that Gentile salvation. She was a Gentile who not only was saved, but became a part of the people of God and in the lineage of Christ in Matthew chapter 1. The new covenant includes Jew and Gentile. So with Moses in verses 23 through 29 and Rahab in verses 30 and 31, how do these concepts help us? We're not facing Jericho's. We're not facing Egypt's. And we're not meant to say, oh, so-and-so is your Egypt. Your, your job performance review is your Egypt, and you just need to run an exodus. No, 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 no. Instead, we have to remember that just like what we see in the Old Testament, we will go through times of pressure or persecution. And when we go through times of pressure or persecution or when we're worried or when it seems like nothing can go the way that it's supposed to, this text, the whole scripture, is calling us to remember why Moses and Rahab could act by faith. Moses and Rahab could act by faith because God keeps his promises. And one of the greatest promises he gave us is that Jesus is better than anything. Robert Bruce, who was born a noble uh, in a, to a Scottish family in the 16th and century, 17th century, gave up all the wealth and prestige that came with being a Scottish noble in order to pastor. And he wrote, um, uh, he preached, I think, 30-something sermons just on chapter 11. It's a huge book. He had entire sermons over one verse. But in thinking about the persecution in his sermons, particularly in this section, he said this. These experiences, and persecution both in the text and that we experience, these experiences let us see that the treatment of the Kirk, remember he's Scottish, Kirk means church in Scottish, so we hear Kirk, think church. These experiences let us see that the treatment of the Kirk has always been the same. 
Likewise, I see whatever the schemes of our enemies or the direction which the devil is taking, that under these crosses, burdens, and edicts, the Lord always blesses his kirk, nourishing and upholding her with inner spiritual consolations when all outward help is failing us. The encouragement of Bruce is to remember that even when we're going under persecution, even when we feel like we can't figure things out, these are the times that the Lord is working in and through his church, his Kirk, in order to bless us, nourish us, and draw us into God's word. He wants this to be our lifeblood. He wants us to run to him. He wants us to be living each and every day more and more and more like Christ. Trials, persecution, and difficulties are all times when the Lord blesses his faithful people. Maybe not always the way we want or expect, just like Jericho didn't come down the way they would have expected. But the Lord loves us and cares for us nonetheless quote that I think is impactful is no one learns to be a sailor on calm seas or a very similar one is no one learns to be a sailor without leaving the harbor when we go through rough times when we hit rough seas that's when we learn how to trust and lean on the Lord throughout my spiritual life I've seen so many different cases of people who suffer and go under deep and, and hard persecution and years later as they come out from that they're able to love and counsel and lift up people who are going through the same thing. The Lord blesses us, maybe not always in the ways that we expect, but we have to remember that he is there and he is faithful. Bruce goes on to make recommendations throughout uh, the sermons, but here's just four that I think are impactful uh, to this particular section of text. Number one, the wisdom of faith does not despise ordinary means. When we believe, when we are faithful, we don't ignore the small things that the Lord calls us to do. We don't ignore the word and prayer and seek deep theological knowledge. We do the ordinary means. We think about the word and prayer and the sacraments and the things that the Lord has given us to bless him. Number two, we're called to depend wholly on God, no matter what the situation is. Our temptation is going to be depend on ourselves or something that we know, but we're called to depend wholly on God. Number three, know that faith will be attacked. This is not a happy, smiling piece of information. When you believe, when you pursue the Lord, you have a larger target on your back than when you are not pursuing God. Uh, one commentator said this, no one yet had faith without daily temptations. As you grow more and more like Christ, people are going to see Christ in you, which means Satan wants to take you out of the fight. C.S. Lewis said, I pray that the day that I die is a day when all of hell rejoices because a great soldier has been taken out of the fight. That's a summary, not a quote. That's the way we ought to live because we are in spiritual warfare. And when we have faith, we will be attacked. And number four, let us place our rest and quietness in the cross. As we seek to live by faith, find peace in the gospel of grace. Dennis Johnson wraps it up well. 
we too must look beyond the fleeting pleasures of sin and the threats of rejection and persecution, setting our sights on the living God too glorious to be seen by human eyes and the reward that he will bestow. As we look to Jesus, the things of this world will go strangely dim and we'll pursue him instead of those pleasures. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the way that you have shown us through this text the importance, the importance of faith, of living by faith. You've given us not examples of perfect people, but of people who are sinners, and yet you worked in and through them, and they lived by faith. We, too, as sinners, are called to live by faith. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to do that well. You would help us to remember that the wisdom of faith does not despise your ordinary means of word and prayer and the sacraments, that we're called to depend wholly on you, that we know that we will be attacked when we seek out faith, and that we will rest and have quietness in the gospel of grace and Jesus' cross. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. We pray that you are drawn closer to God and encouraged to be in the Word. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org.